I'm hopeful that, you know, this could be a reboot for mankind and good things can come out of it, not just bad things. If we can all somehow unite together. Welcome to Finding the Helpers, presented by Playing to Live. I'm Kristen Ramsey. And I'm Alexis DeCosmo. What you're about to hear are the voices and stories of those on the front line of the COVID-19 pandemic. What they are seeing, what they are feeling as individuals, and how they are coping. That, in combination with some immediate self-care and grounding interventions from the Playing to Live clinical team. Some of what is shared may be hard to hear, so please make sure to take care of yourself. Hey everyone, it's Kristen. And Alexis. We've made it through another week of this, and just like last week, we hope you've all been staying as safe as possible and are still finding outlets for support. This week, we have a story that explores what it's like to be a healthcare provider who's not directly treating COVID patients. Alexis, can you tell us some more about who we're going to hear from today? Of course. Her name is Alexander Kaiser. Alex is a physician's assistant in New York City, where she works in oncology at a multiple myeloma center. She is also a music festival enthusiast who is used to a lot of social interaction. In her interview, she gives us a glimpse of what it is like to work in other areas of medicine during a pandemic, what it's like to support her patients through this, and ultimately what it has been like to try to find ways to support herself. So my name is Alexandra Kaiser, and I am a physician assistant in New York City. I've been a PA for almost nine years now. I'm at Wild Cornell. I work in an outpatient multiple myeloma center, and my primary job is to take care of patients with blood cancers, um, treating them with uh, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, and stem cell transplants. And then I still work sometimes moonlighting um, inpatient in the hospital at both Columbia and um, Sloan Kettering. I'm curious about what brought you to medicine and some of the passions you have to doing this work. I had a very strong interest in science from a very young age. I remember being in biology in sixth grade and my teacher, Mrs. Goldstein, teaching us about scientific method and learning about the cell and the organelles and how the body worked. And I just remember immediately just being enthralled in the world of science. Remembering your sixth grade science teacher just cracked me up. <laughs> yep, that's important. <laughs> After hearing about Mrs. Goldstein in sixth grade and how clearly passionate Alex is about medicine, she shared that she had always figured she would end up in psychiatric medicine. During her rotations in PA school, though, she found herself not only feeling like psychiatric medicine was not her path, but feeling intensely called to oncology. Let's listen as she describes the factors she attributes to the shift in her calling. I found you get to do a lot of mental health and psychiatry as well as medicine because you and your patient quickly become a team. Some of my patients I've known for six and seven years, thankfully, because they're doing well. But I think the thing I like most about oncology is the relationship you make with patients. There's also the palliative care, spiritual aspect, also, it's a field that is a rapidly, rapidly evolving. You know, we're getting new treatments, new way of doing treatments, CAR T cells, immunotherapy, all this, you know, crazy in, in the media, but I'm seeing it in real time. 
And only having been a PA for nine years, I'm seeing diseases that once were a poor prognosis now have treatment options. So I think for all those reasons, I kind of was drawn into the field and likely it will never leave. (laughs) With all of that about what drew you to oncology, I'm curious what it's like to be in oncology during this pandemic. So it's very difficult. Um, Actually, at first, you know, the first few weeks, I wasn't sure if I was going to be deployed to the quote front lines, meaning into the ER, into the hospital, into the ICU. But the problem with that is I have 130 patients that are actively on chemotherapy. And we spent kind of the first week or two as this pandemic unfolded in mid-March, going through our patient list, looking at their age, their comorbidity, and their diagnosis and where they were with their disease and deciding who absolutely needs to come in for chemotherapy, um, despite the risk of getting exposed to COVID, and who can wait. And then explaining to the patients that are so used to getting their chemo all the time, you know, that we have to wait a month or two, um, or switching patients that are on IV chemo to oral and hoping it does the job. And there's just a lot of risk versus benefit analysis, and then managing the patient's anxiety over that. It's just been really hard. A lot of it is phone calls and emails. The hospital policy is changing so quickly. The amount of PPE we had access to was changing so quickly. And our patients, you know, were supposedly the highest risk. So anytime they had any problem, normally you're more um, likely to admit a patient to the hospital. But now we're doing everything in our power to not send them there, at least that first month, because we thought it was more dangerous for them to be there than not. You know, In medicine, your job is to protect people and to help them heal. And I wonder what kind of personal impact it is on you as you're having to send emails and communicate with patients that you do have this strong relationship with that says, hey, we have to pause your care. Yeah, I mean, it's the first month was really rough. I feel like I finally, maybe this week, have two feet on the ground. Um, I'm also very empathic. So I can't help but absorb their anxiety and their pain and their fear. So it's been this weird dichotomy of managing their expectations. Um, the first, I mean, I felt super drained. The first two weeks, I was honestly working like seven days a week, answering emails, phone calls all weekend. And at some point I was like, I can't maintain this. I am exhausted all the time. So, but I've been trying to do little things to make the patients felt cared for. Like I created this, um, I called it the COVID cancer care package program. And it was something that I kind of had to piece together by myself, but they had all these programs for managing patients post-discharge that were admitted to the hospital with COVID and went home, but they didn't have anything for pre-admission. So my patients were calling me with fevers and they said they were short of breath, but it was hard to tease out, okay, are they anxious because they have a fever and they're worried they have COVID or is this actually an emergency? Um, And I was able to get pulse oximeters, thermometers, and a bunch of other stuff donated by different companies by sending like a thousand emails but eventually it came to fruition. So now any patient that I'm worried about, I can FedEx or hand deliver this little care package that I put together that has things that'll make them feel a little bit more safe at home. That's amazing. Sounds like you're doing so many. Aside from the job that is already taking, I'm sure a lot of your energy, as you said, doing all these supportive fundraiser tasks. Yeah, no, I like think because I wasn't on the front lines and because I'm working two days a week and I'm home a lot, I had a lot of times to think of, okay, what else can I do in my community to make a difference? Early on in this, all my friends that worked in PT or massage or spas or were vets 
FedEx me masks. So I had way more masks than I could ever need. And I was like, oh my God, the FBI is going to come get me. <laughs> but uh, first I brought them to work. And thankfully my hospital is very well staffed with masks. Then I started sending them down to friends in other states that needed them, like to New Orleans, for example. But I still have a bunch left. So I started going around um, and handing them out to grocery store workers, people at the gas station, MTA employees, anyone who is providing an essential service that doesn't have a mask should be wearing one because they're going to get sick. So I think like beyond my job, I tried to do a lot within just like my immediate community, which felt good, you know, giving you get, you receive when you give. <laughs> it was clear that despite her work as a PA, Alex was working very hard to use any downtime she had to keep giving back during this crisis. Here's what she had to say when we asked her about where she thought that drive came from. I thought I was the only one experiencing it, but I've talked to a lot of other friends I know that are used to work on the floor and are now outpatient. And there's like this weird survivor's guilt kind of phenomenon going on where like we feel guilty that we're not, you know, having N95 bruises on our face and we're not in the ER and we're not holding the patient's hands when they're dying. Despite the fact that that's kind of silly because like the front line can't exist without all of the support behind it, you know? But it was a weird thing to kind of observe guilt, like I'm not doing enough in myself. <laughs> and I think that's so important because I imagine that that is a very real thing that so many people are feeling. I mean, even as a mental health clinician, I feel that where I'm like, I'm not on the front line. I'm not doing enough. No. And like the whole like comparative guilt and comparative empathy, you know, it's just anytime you're comparing yourself to somebody else, it's just not serving you. I realized. Well, and Alex, I'm hearing you talk about this survivor's guilt, not moments after you have explained all of these other projects you're doing and how hard you were working to rearrange your patient care. And what that's bringing up for me is just what guilt can do to our brains and how it makes us forget the things that we actually are doing. It's also making me wonder what you would name as the biggest challenges to your personal well-being so far in this crisis. Um, I mean... There's a lot. I think I'm finally like, you're catching me at a time where I'm finally feeling like myself again. I would say like the first month, I barely remember self-care was really not high on my priority list. Um, I think my biggest challenges were all of, almost all of my coping skills were immediately taken away from me. Um, one of my favorite things in the whole world to do is see live music. Um, I'm super into jam bands and festivals. I go to tons of shows, multiple shows a month. And suddenly like my favorite thing to do is gone. And then most of my friends that are not in healthcare that live in the city all left. So my friends aren't even here. Um, and just being able to like go outside and run, you know, physical activity. Um, I wasn't feeling well, honestly, the first two weeks. I thought I might've had a mild case of COVID, which is super stressful because in that first few weeks, like nobody really knew what to do with mildly symptomatic healthcare workers and there was no testing. Um, so I had a really hard time in the beginning because I didn't physically feel well. My anxiety was out of control because of that. And, you know, I, I live alone. Um, I have a beautiful apartment and it's not too tiny, but, you know, it's just me and these four walls. And it's been that way for weeks. Um, I think so. the biggest struggle for me has been figuring out, like, what serves me and what doesn't serve me and kind of, like, looking at each thing, like, if this feels good, I'll lean into it. And if it doesn't feel good, like remove it. 
you know, social media has been like a dangerous place because <laughs> the first you know few weeks I would just get so upset when people were like socially distancing and they're like on a beach you know or like on a lake I just can't have it in my peripheral knowing that that's people's options right now <laughs> and like New York literally it, you can't go outside without really being um interacting with people so there's been a lot of unfollowing and unfriending and it's it's been good i've been condoing my uh social media life which has been helpful <laughs> i've been doing the same thing <laughs> i appreciate that yeah it feels really good it's like really empowering you're like no more yeah it's like little things um i realized early on that like having to worry about going grocery shopping or cooking food was just an excuse for me not to take care of myself so if I had home cooked meals like made by my mom and dad with love, the food was ready for me. Um, I'm very lucky because they live 45 minutes away in Long Island. Every week they ask me for a menu and they cook me all my favorite foods and then they drive in and they drop it off. Um, so it was like one less thing that I had to do to take care of myself. What a fabulous idea. I'm hearing you talk about all these little things and you said earlier that it was the little things for your patients too that seemed to be making a difference. So far, you've named outsourcing your food to your parents, Marie Kondoing your social media life, and you just seem to have really mastered the art of these little things. I'm wondering if there's anything else you've found along those lines that's helpful that you would mind sharing with us and with our audience. Well, one more thing that I did for myself that I'm really proud of and that I love. So there's been a lot of ups and downs of days where I'm like, I got this. And then days where I'm just like, I'm never leaving my apartment again. I have no friends. I'm struggling. Um, I bought masking tape and I put like beautiful rainbows on my windows and I've, you know, increased the amount of colorful artwork everywhere. Um, but one of my favorite bands is Fish. I love the Grateful Dead and jam bands and I love Fish. And every um, Tuesday night they do dinner and a movie and they stream a show and they release a recipe for all their fans to cook. And then everybody watches the show at 8.30 all together. So a week and a half ago on the Tuesday, it was a show called Magnaball, which was a festival that I'd been at. And I was watching the crowd of 40,000 people. And I knew I was in that crowd. And I just felt myself crashing into a darker and darker, kind of hopeless, melancholy state. And I was like, what do I do with this? How do I turn this darkness into something lighter? There was a Facebook group called Fish Chicks that I'm in that I've never really posted in other than for tickets. But there's 15,000 people in there. And I just posted and I said, I'm watching the show. I'm having a hard time. I miss my friends, my family, my life. I live alone. I work in healthcare. Is anybody else feeling this way? Would somebody be willing to write me mail? Getting mail is like such a nice and unexpected surprise. And within like 12 hours, I think 50 girls asked me for my address. And by Thursday, the mail started coming and has not stopped coming. Um, I've gotten at least one package or letter every day for the past week. They're colorful. They're full of sparkles. Some people put stickers in there and it's jewelry. And it's just such a small touch and such a simple action that people can take to kind of support somebody. But it really, I feel like it's part of what helped me turn the corner into feeling more grounded and happy. Um, and something I could do when I have time is to write letters back to them, you know, and it's a nice way to give back and to feel connected uh, in a reciprocal way. That's a really beautiful story. I love that. That's such a great idea. Yeah. I've, I've shows on Tuesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays of my, my favorite bands. 
Um, little things like that. I do have standing Zoom calls with people on different nights of the week. Sometimes they fuel me and sometimes they make me feel alone when I'm Zooming with all my friends that like live with husbands and kids. But then sometimes I watch people with their kids and I'm like, thank God I live alone. <laughs> so I think everybody's in their own experience of this, you know, whether you live or alone, whether you, you live with your spouse, whether you have three kids, you know, like I think we're all going through it differently, but you know, we're all connected through it as well. We've heard this idea of connection multiple times since starting this project. The idea that everyone has their own path through this, but that we are all still going through it together. After sharing so much about the stresses of keeping her patients safe and her own personal ups and downs through this crisis, we asked Alex if there was anything else she would like to share before closing. Um, yeah, I think we all need to practice self-compassion. Um, I think a lot of us are like, I have this free time. I need to do something with it. I need to fill it. I need to be productive, creative, make sure my house is clean. We're all experiencing a collective trauma and whatever you're doing is enough. I think that you're doing your best and we're all doing our best. Um, a fish quote that a lot of people that have been putting onto the things I've been receiving is just relax. You're doing fine. That's all you need to do is every day, just do the best you can for that day. Try to be kind to people, but more importantly, be kind to yourself and just be accepting of the situation because it's not changing. And if you fight it, it's, it's going to be that much harder. <laughs> I made myself a things I need to do every day in order to, you know, not go crazy during quarantine list. Shower, drink water, clean one thing. <laughs> Be mindfully present to something, whether it's a song, a sensation, a vision, or a spiritual practice. Speak to one person outside your home every day, which is easy because I live alone. <laughs> uh, do one thing to get your heart rate up. Do one thing you'll be glad you did later and get at least one good laugh in every day. Some days are easier than others, but I think just reaching out to the things you know work and leaning into the things that feel good, but saying no to the things you need to say no to as well. Really important advice. <laughs> yeah. And I think you just did our job for us. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, I was sitting here and I'm thinking, I'm like, this is the seventh amazing in the moment coping skill that she has provided in these last 30 minutes. Well, I will tell my therapist that they did a great job. You know, I didn't wait <laughs> to on my 15 years. <laughs> Oh my goodness. All right. Well, thank you so much, Alex, for your time. This has been really amazing. Thank you. Thank you. This has been really lovely. In this part of our podcast, we take inspiration from our interviewees to create easy to do self-care activities that any of our listeners can benefit from and use. It is clear that Alex has done a lot of introspective work even before the pandemic, which is probably what has allowed her to land in a place so dedicated to self-care. Even with that work, it is important to note that it still took her a while to get to a place feeling balanced between self-care and serving others. Something that stood out to me was when Alex talked about a feeling of guilt for not being on the front line of the virus 
Despite her working so hard at the hospitals and the different fundraisers and projects she is doing to fill in the gaps that she is witnessing. I really related to this as someone who typically is more front and center in crises and also works as a helping professional. So I'm actually going to take an idea given to me by my therapist. The idea is to make a note of everything you do throughout the day. Note down the calls you make, emails you read or send, and mark off the different tasks you do. I know for me, and it sounds like for Alex, that when you have so many different projects happening, days meld together, and it's hard to see all the different goals and projects that are being done. By making quick notes during the day, it will give you a sense of progress towards your goals, as well as allow you to know that you're making a difference, even if it's not fully related to the global crisis around you. Yeah, I really related to that guilt too, that guilt of not being directly on the front line. And it was something that I wanted to talk about as well, not necessarily through an activity, but more just to explore how sometimes it is possible to turn challenging feelings into actions. We discussed a similar theme in a previous episode around the idea that when self-care is hard, as Alex explained it was for her in the beginning, actions to help others to find your purpose, or in Alex's case, to combat guilt, can become a form of self-care until you've worked through enough of that challenging feeling to directly aim care at yourself. We talked to Alex for over an hour, so not everything she said made it into the episode, but at one point she even explains that she thinks, in hindsight, in the beginning when taking care of herself seemed inaccessible, these projects were her self-care. And I think it can be really powerful to name that. Yeah, so actually these projects that you're speaking about and that balance between self-care and serving others is what I want to talk about next in terms of another activity. She was very humble about all the amazing projects she started, but her passion and enthusiasm was so evident. Doing something that impacts another person directly links back to feeling positivity within ourselves. Alex has gone above and beyond with her projects, but I want to encourage everyone to make a goal each day, each week, whatever time frame really seems doable, to intentionally do something for someone else. That could be a quick text or affirmation, a handwritten letter, or lending a helping hands. That could even be donating time or money to a cause you support. By sending support and positivity beyond ourselves, it makes a difference for all of us, and we need all the positivity we can get right now. I mean, Alex named it herself when she says you receive when you give. So I think making that point that even just through a text message, giving something to someone else can definitely add to our own personal positivity right now. I'm gonna switch gears a little bit for my activity. So my activity this week is social media. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. You're welcome. Listening to Alex talk about how hard it was to see people social distancing in open, beautiful places, how she was Marie Kondoing her social media life, and you didn't hear this part either, but she explained that early on she was drafting all these really intense comebacks to posts that she didn't agree with and then just deleting them. So you might laugh at this, but like Alexis, I am also about to share something that my therapist shared with me. Personally, early on in this, my therapist asked me how I was dealing with anxiety in this crisis, and I said, I'm fine. I'm picking fights with people on social media and taking all of my aggression out that way. And then I looked at her face, and I stopped and realized what I had just said and realized that it wasn't actually helping me at all. 
it was increasing my anger. It was taking up time in my day and polarizing me from people at the same time. So this is sort of why we had the dramatic entrance to this activity, because my suggestion is to find a way to be kind enough to yourself and give yourself enough grace and space to either unfriend or block if unfriending seems too harsh for the relationship. Those who are posting things which frustrate you, aggravate you, or add to your anxiety. I'm in no way suggesting that we never listen to anyone who has a different viewpoint than we do, but maybe social media doesn't need to be where that happens if it's causing the negative feelings that it did for Alex and certainly did for me. I completely agree with that. And I, I want to add that there's different ways to interact on social media. I just want to encourage that there's also direct messaging. And so if there really is a cause or something that you feel like you need to have a voice in, take the audience out of it and direct message them and try to have a conversation that's between you two. As long as it feels safe, as long as this person is receptive, that might be something that's important for you. I've never thought about that, but I think even just removing the audience can be a really strong place to start. And now that we have sufficiently challenged your social media life, it is time to move on. So I wanted to end by bringing back up that Alex said we caught her at a good time, a time where she finally feels as though her feet are back on the ground and she's come full circle to a place where she's committed to caring for herself through what she calls the little things. Mail, brightening her apartment, outsourcing her food prep to her parents, Zoom calls. We've heard this before, that when the things that are out of your control are so big, it's really the little things that begin to bring back some normalcy. To loop this into what Alexis and I have both spoken about in using action for others as self-care and giving as a way to increase positivity, we wanted to leave you with some information about one additional project Alex has started. Her words convey far more passion and knowledge about this than I could ever replicate, so here she is to explain it. The last time I took the subway was six weeks ago now because I got on, it was packed, I had a mask on, and that was it. I didn't go down there anymore. Obviously, we're seeing that there's a big disparity, um, not to get political, but, you know, a lot of our med techs and administrative support staff live in the Bronx, live in Brooklyn. They live farther away from Law Cornell, and they can't afford to take Ubers. So I found out they were all still taking the subway. And I said to them, do you feel safe? And they said, no, I'm terrified, but I don't have another way to get to work. So something I've been trying to work on and you know, I recognize my privilege as being able to afford being able to take the Uber back and forth to work. Um, so I've started a very small fundraiser trying to raise money for just the few support staff people that I know of um, to try to fund their Uber rides so that they don't have to be on the subways and feel unsafe. There will be a link to the affiliated GoFundMe site in the blog post about this episode. Thank you for listening to Finding the Helpers, presented by Plain to Live. Don't forget to reach out at info at plaintolive.org with any ideas of what you want to hear, if you want to be a guest, or if you know someone who would. There will be a link to our blog in the description of every episode, where you can find more information about our speakers and the activities we suggested. Tune in every Tuesday for a new interview and make sure you subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen so you can get up-to-date alerts on what we are doing. And you can find out more about Plain to Live at www.plaintolive.org. And a special thank you to Josh Carter for our theme music. 
until next time, stay safe out there.